Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the World Football Summit podcast. I'm your host, Jaime, CMO at World Football Summit. Our guest today is Jordan Gardner. He's an American sports executive who is chairman of the board, managing partner, and co-owner at FC Helsingborg from Denmark. His approach, as you will see, is very contrary to that of other North American investors, as he likes to start small and learn the business from the base. Three years after his group acquired the Danish Soccer Club, he shares with us many valuable lessons around culture, leadership, and so much more, which help prove why he was a worthy finalist of the Best Executive Award at World Football Summit. This was a great conversation, and I'm pretty sure you will get as much value as we did from it, regardless of the industry you work in. You know what the best thing is? Jordan is a confirmed speaker for WFS Europe, so you can expect to hear more from him at the event. If you haven't done so already, head over to our website and buy your ticket so you can join us either in person or virtually. Finally, before we go, feel free to leave your feedback or your comments on social media about this conversation. You know where to reach us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you want. Nothing else from my side. I hope you enjoy the conversation and let's welcome Mr. Jordan Gardner. All right, Jordan, so thank you. Um, okay, so first question, I, I want to cover several topics. The first question is actually regarding the business skills in sport. So um, a few years ago, uh, I was speaking to a headhunter, actually. He was he had a career in sports as well. Um, and what he was telling me is that a lot of organizations um, were lacking business skills. Um, so I want to I wanna understand if you agree with this statement and if this is true uh, today. And what are the three business skills, just to put three, um, that you believe the football world needs today? I absolutely agree with that. I think the problem is, is many people look at football as a vanity product. They don't look at it and treat it as a serious business. And it's such a unique and challenging industry to be in because everything you do, whether you're an owner or a director or CEO or at any point, it's all very forward-facing, right? So if I... If I make a decision, everyone's going to know about it. The, you know, the local community, the supporters, the newspapers, you know, TV, everyone, right? Whereas if I was in a non-sports-related industry, I can make, you know, I can do anything I wanted and no one would really notice, right? So I think the problem really starts that I think the most significant problem in football and football business is the lack of value in what I call human capital, which is people, right? This is a people business, you know? I like to think our success in Denmark isn't just the act of smart things and make good decisions. I think that's part of it, but I've brought on really good people. And for us, that's a coach, a sporting director, a CEO. And the culture we've built, which we'll get to in a second, it's really driven by people. So I think human resources, people, um, it, it's really important. I don't think a lot of football clubs value that. I think it's, you know, a very wealthy individual buys a club and they have friends and they're like, okay, cool, I'll hire my friend to go run my club for me. Isn't necessarily obviously the right way you should go about things. So I think things are changing a bit in the industry as more savvy investors are coming into the sport. Maybe in my case, Americans and private equity. Um, I think they're treating it a little bit more in a sophisticated way, but I think the industry lags significantly in terms of identifying talent, in terms of people. Um, I think clubs just generally aren't run to maximize profits, which I'm not necessarily sure it's a, it's a separate argument. Should they be run to maximize profits? But they should be run in a professional way, and there's many clubs that aren't. I 
think you run into challenges, which I'm sure you see in Spain, where clubs are run by socios. Yeah. Not to say that private investors necessarily always run clubs well because they don't either, but you know, when you have organizations and clubs built to really not be run like a professional business, they're not going to run like a professional business. So I think it's it's a lot of those different things. And again, there are of course clubs that are doing things the right way, but there's many examples of clubs that aren't. And then you know, the last thing I will say is really just decision making in organizations and. You can, I can give you a hundred different examples, but just look at, you know, the way clubs identify talent and sign players and, you know, they rely on agents and they rely on third parties to make decisions for them. And it's really a very inefficient industry. And I think it's something that is changing slowly, but as we sit here and today, it, it's, it's very, very inefficient and unprofessional in my mind across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually going back to what you were saying about the, the human capital, which I fully agree, you know, um, I actually once heard you say something, uh, you, you spoke of a framework, uh, with three pillars. You talked about culture, stability and leadership, right? So those were kind of three traits that you said those were key for success. Um, so I don't know if you can give more details or maybe examples, uh, around, you know, those three pillars that, that executives can learn more from. Yeah. I mean, I think culture in any, Sports organization or any business is incredibly important. You want to have people that are excited and, and uh, in a positive frame of mind to come to work every day, right? When we bought our club in Denmark, I said this publicly, you know, no one wanted to be there. You could just tell, right? I would go out to training and the players, the staff, the goal, everyone down to the kit man was just like, I don't want to be here. And that was really, why was that the case? Well, part of it was losing and a losing culture, but a lot of it was the leadership in the club was just not creating an environment where it was conducive to success. And it, it's, a, it's a bit difficult to quantify. I get asked this quite frequently, like, how do I, how would I build, how do I build good culture? And culture is something that kind of has to happen organically and it's built by people, right? So for us to change our culture and organization, we had to bring in new people who are strong leaders and can build the culture. And again, that's, that's making sure that people who work for you respect you. That's making sure you, you treat people the right way. Um, that's making sure you recognize when they do things well and then when they do, do things not well. And so that's, you know, a lot of that's just organizational structure and making sure you have a well-run organization. Stability to me is something that's really important. I think that's pretty easy to see clubs that are not stable in football, hiring and firing managers every month. Like it happens all the time. I think, um, I think it's really important to have stability on and off the pitch, you know, clubs that have ownership and stability or issues paying their wages or, um, all those kind of things trickle down to the players and trickle down to the on-field performance, and that can be really difficult. And, again, that's no different than the real business world where if at the top of a business, you know, the way I look at it, and I get asked this as well, like why do you spend so much time at your club in Denmark? Uh, you know, you, you're the owner, chairman, managing partner, right? Like, And for me, it, it's about showing leadership. It's about being present. And it's like if, if I work for a company, I want to know who's cutting my checks and who is – where is this all going, right? Where are we going? with this organization. I think that's why it's important to be present. So that transitions into the leadership perspective, which is being there, being present. I think absentee ownership from foreign investment football in particular, we've seen, we've seen doesn't really work. I've been involved in projects where I've been a small investor and the larger investors have not been present. And then it's really easy for the culture and the stability to kind of crumble away if you don't have the leadership. Mm -hmm. And so the leadership starts at the top, which is ownership in sports, but that trickles down to leadership, in the locker room, and that's from players, and that's from the coach. Leadership off the pitch, that's from your CEO and your director and your sporting staff. That's making sure that, you know, everyone understands what their role is. And I think a, a good example that I use here in the U.S. is the Golden State Warriors, so then the NBA Finals right yeah. now. It's, yeah. you know, 
they had really poor ownership going back 10 or 15 years, and they were a very, very bad team. They got new ownership. They came in with really good new ideas. They hired a new coach who was a fantastic coach who was a great leader. They hired a new CEO to the same thing. And those people hired great people underneath them, and the culture just permeated from the top down. Sounds easy. It sounds like something every organization should do, but it's a lot more difficult when it comes to practice. Yeah, and, and from this, I mean, we can take it a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of directions. But I'm thinking, um, well, one of the things that I like from your approach in terms of the investment into a club is that you, you didn't really go big. You know, you started out small in, in terms of, you know, hey, let's work it up little by little, which I think it's, it's, it's a, the smart approach. But do you think there's other clubs that there are, they have a lot of resources? So financial resources and they get more access to talent. And, but do you think culture, going back to culture, is that, let's say, or can that be a competitive advantage versus other clubs that may have more resources, but not as good as a culture? Yes, absolutely. I think if you compare, um, you know, I, I think there, there have to be areas. So, you know, for instance, again, I use our example in Denmark is that, you know, we were very, very close to getting promoted to the day. Yeah. Really good this chair. Mm-hmm. And there were half a dozen teams uh, that were either in com- you know, competition with us or well below us on the table spending significant amounts of money more than us. So you're right. I think um, our culture and the type of players that we recruited and the type of organization we built was was kind of a way that we wanted players that were hungry, that were young, um, that didn't have this necessarily sense of entitlement of saying, well, I spent my whole career in the top division, Super League, and now I'm in a lower division. I don't really want to be here anymore. So you have a lot of that, like what is the mentality of your organization? And we were kind of an organization that was looking upwards. Well, I think what's interesting with the relegation system is sometimes you have clubs that come down and they might be spending a lot of money, but it's, it's this culture of negativity of a lot of players that saying, I'm too good to be here in yeah. this division that I'm at. And so I think, you know, of course, at the end of the day, you know, uh, things like culture and being savvy in terms of the way you spend, they can only get you so far. I, I can't compete with a team spending 10 times as much on players. Like it's just not, that's just not realistic, right? But can I compete with teams spending two, three, four times as much based on the culture and the organization that we build? Absolutely. We think so. We've, we've proven that. Yeah. And I'm thinking that you're talking about the ego. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. You have a goalkeeper. Your goalkeeper used to play in Germany, right? I, I believe. Um, so. Yeah. How do you manage that in terms of, you know, when you, when you go into a locker room, obviously you have all these accomplished players at the end of the day at their craft, right? So how do you manage ego uh, from, from that point of view? And not only that, is it a certain degree of ego necessary to get to the top or can you, or, or, or is it not, or is it more about really ambition rather than ego? It's, it's a very good question because I think it, it's a delicate balance, right? Because you want players that believe in themselves and are hungry and are saying, look, I want to I want to play in the Champions League. I want to play in the Premier League. But you also have to have players that understand that, well, for now, here and now, you're in the Danish First Division, right? And you have to have, there's limitations on who you are and what you are. So it's a, it's a little bit of a balance in terms of you want players that have self-confidence, but not players that are too arrogant, that they, they think they're too good for your organization. Um, I think a lot of a lot of that goes into the diligence we do before we bring players on board. It goes for coaches too, but players as well. Is you know, cool. We can go watch tape on them and scout them, and send, you know, they can look good on the data. But if they don't have the right mentality, and they're not going to be a good fit for our locker room, then they're not the right player for us. So what we've made a point of is making sure we recruit players that fit our philosophy that are going to fit well in our locker room. Of course, we don't always do it perfectly, but we've signed. I think this past season we had six former captains in, on our team, so guys that were captains of the club, we brought them in. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how do they fit in the locker room, you know, that's obviously a balance between our coaching staff and we have a captain's group and 
So, so we do everything we can from an off-field perspective to bring the guys in with the right mentality, but then it kind of falls upon the coaching staff and the players themselves to make sure they're all integrated together properly. And it doesn't always work great. I mean, obviously, we don't have a ton of foreign players, but we have players from different places with different languages and different cultures. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we have over the past couple of years, it's gotten better and better. We have had players in the locker room who, who are not the right people, and we've made a point pretty quickly to get them out of that locker room. Because all it takes is one player with bad culture in that locker room, and it can ruin the whole thing. And so um, to your point, I think the answer to, to, to getting it right is just doing your homework beforehand before you bring a player in. Yeah, and because when you think well, when you think about a locker room, at the end of the day, you have you know your stars. You were saying it before, no, your 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 star players, your promising players, it's the guys that have been the, the veterans that are actually thinking about leaving at the club. But if you think about it, that also transfers into the business side. At the end of the day, you know you have the the young guy that just comes out of university and wants to you know rule the world. Then you have you know your typical guy that has been 25 years at the same company, and you know we've been there, done that. Um, so how does a leader or what are the traits that a leader needs to have to manage some, that, that, that type of a complex situation? Uh, is there anything that comes to mind? I mean, I think a good leader has to be flexible and understanding that not every person is in the same. And like you said, not every person is in the same life position. So for instance, for us in our office and our administration, we have a head of sponsorship who is 60 years old and has been in the business for 25 years. And then we had a head of communications who is 28 years old, just cracking to the business, is from Portugal, and she's super hungry and super motivated. So it's you know, how do you balance those two people that are in different stages of their lives with different outlooks on the world, right? And so, you know, I don't think there's one skill set under other than being compassionate, understanding that people are, are in different places. Um, I think for us, what's also more interesting from being a foreign ownership perspective is balancing the fact that we want and need domestic staff that understands the local market and the culture and the language, but also people that understand the way we look at the world in terms of big Americans and how we want to make sure the club is run efficiently and more professionally. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's like what I said earlier, it's treating people with respect. It's, you know, giving the acknowledgements when they do good work. And I think it's, you know, correcting them when they don't and, you know, building a good, strong culture. And if you can do that, you're going to maintain good talent off the pitch, on the pitch as well. Um, but there's no kind of, there's no one easy answer. I think everyone wants the easy route when it comes to these things. And there's no one, it just takes hard work. <clears throat> Excuse me, it takes dedication. Mm -hmm. It takes these things to build over time. And certainly it's the same as I talked about in terms of doing your homework ahead of time. It's, you know, when we bought the club, we did a lot of evaluating of the current employees. We got, we, we left, uh, we fired some of them and brought in some new staff. And you know, we've, we've made changes over the years and adjusted where we need to adjust. Um, but we knew the type of people we wanted to bring in. And, you know, for instance, right now we're looking for a new sporting director. So we're going through a checklist of uh, the interview process in terms of what we're looking for. You know, our last sporting director, he wasn't very strong on the data side. And so that's something with this next sporting director we want to, we want to really focus in on. And, you know, there's certain things, leadership, building culture, all those kind of things are important pieces that we look at when we hire someone. And so you don't, you can do your homework and you can check references and all that, but until they're in your organization, you don't 100% know, but you can, you can do 90% of the homework to get yourself in a position where you're most likely going to have a good group of people in your organization if you do your, your diligence in advance. And can you think about any choices that you've made in the past that made you the leader that you are today? Like that you reflect on, you say, oh, this was a key choice for me. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think internally, some of this, while, while it might not seem that way, I think sometimes when we've had to make really difficult decisions to fire people, I think it could have looked like, well, that's a negative. Why are they doing this? But I think a lot of people 
uh, I think, gain respect for us and our organization in terms of making the very difficult decisions. Because, look, I mean, no one ever wants someone to lose their job. No one ever wants a coworker to lose their job. But, you know, we've made decisions where after the fact, employees have come up to us and said, look, like, yeah, I didn't really want that person to leave, but they weren't doing a great job at their, you know, they weren't doing a great job. And I respect that you guys had the, uh, had the fortitude to make that decision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, I think, I think it, it solidifies the people, you know, cause, cause what happens is that you don't want to be in a job where the guy next to you is, is not working hard and you're busting your ass. This guy's collecting a paycheck, right? Yeah. So I think if, the organization recognizes that, says, back in, it's getting a paycheck is out of here, and we're going to focus in on what we're doing well, which is what you're doing. I think that builds a lot of respect in your organization. So it's probably a combination of that and a, com- a combination of just relationship building. And, again, that goes back to uh, being a leader, spending time, being in present, being in person. That's both me and then my CEOs in America who's there full time. It's, you know, when we're there, we're personable, we're present, we're going out to lunch with the staff, we're, we're there, we're understanding what's going on in their personal lives. And so it's – there's not one right answer, but it's it's just about kind of completing the big picture. I'm sure there's things that our staff uh, doesn't like always that we do, but yeah. more often than not, I, I like to think they respect the decisions we make. You talked about the Golden State Warriors before. Um, is there another or an example that you think of from the football industry of, of a good leader or, or somebody that's doing a good job? Yeah, you know, the organization that I really kind of try to model a lot of what I do uh, around is Brentford uh, mm-hmm. in, in a and, you know, I sat down with those guys, this must have been five years ago before we got into Denmark. And wow. you know, I'd seen, I knew they were focused on data. And obviously that's what everyone talks about, which is, which is something really interesting. But I was able to understand how they structured their organizations and how they built what they did and their culture. And what I found really interesting is they had this like really strong organizational uh, leadership. And what they said is, look, you know, these clubs, they hire and fire managers, they hire and fire sporting directors, players moving in and out. We want an organization that's stable. And that, you know, is, is in line with our philosophy. And so what we're going to do as an organization is we're going to hire a goalkeeper coach. We're going to hire an assistant coach. We're going to hire a sporting director. And the last thing we're going to do is bring on the coach. Now, maybe we'll let, we'll let him bring his assistant coach or whatnot. Because, and I was like, okay, that's kind of a backwards way of thinking, right? Most mm-hmm. football clubs, the coach and that coach hires like 15 different people. Um, they said, look, these coaches, they're, they're here, they're there, even if they have success in a place like Brentford, then they're going to leave and go to a bigger club. We want to make sure that organization now, six months, two years, five years, is the same, 100% is the same. And so if that coach leaves, the whole the whole organization is the same, right? We're not we're not worried about losing the assistant coach or the goalkeeper coach or anyone else because they're, they're our guys, right? So mm-hmm. they've built this whole hierarchy and organizational structure around the club, being bigger than any one person or any, any one person. I think, especially when you get to higher levels of football now, the leverage proposition flips between, you know, it goes from the club having the power, I think, to the players and the coaches having the power. And so, you know, you have a Jose Mourinho that comes and says, cool, if you want me, I'm going to have to go bring in my 15 guys. If you want me, you're going to have to go sign players from the agency that I would, I'm friends with right over here. So I think Brentford has done a really good job of saying, cool, like if that's the philosophy you're going to take, you're not a guy for us, right? We're going to bring in, a guy that understands our culture and mm-hmm. they ultimately brought in Danish coach Thomas. Yeah, Frank. I was going to say he's, he's from Denmark. No? <laughs> he's fantastic. And then, you know, you look at it, you know, beyond just that, their recruitment's been really savvy. Pre-Brexit, they were doing a really, really savvy job on recruitment in Scandinavia and across continental Europe. They've obviously focused really much, you know, significantly on data. So, like, the list just goes on and on about the things they're doing right. And so, you know, you can point to Matthew Bennett, who's the owner. Um, but, again, it's not – 
when you ask, is there one person? To me, it's not, there's no one person of reference. The whole organizational culture that they built around the club and who they are. And, you know, I would have said the same thing five years ago that Brentford's the one I model. And this was when they were mid table in the championship. And you, you felt that it was only a matter of time before they really broke through and had success. And obviously, we're standing now with them in the Premier League. That's what I was going to say. There was also there, and, and man, I love those examples. Those those let's say hidden hidden examples because everybody's always looking at the top clubs. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it makes more. It, it's there's much more merit in in teams like Bradford or, or or you guys, you know, who who are competing with other mammoths in the. In, 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 in. I think not to be critical of the biggest clubs, because that's great. I would love to go work for one of the bigger clubs someday in my life. But I think to me it's more impressive what Brentford's doing or even clubs like ours are doing. When your resources are just limited, you have to do things differently. Certainly Brentford now has bigger resources than the Premier League, but, you know, they just have, they have to be smarter. They can't just spend money. They can't make mistake, you know, make a mistake and say, all right, cool, we'll buy that guy out of his contract for X amount of money. They have to be smarter. It's forced them to run a better organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, totally agree. Um in, in, in a sense, it goes over to the business world as well, right? You have smaller businesses that actually compete with the big, the big guys, and you know, actually, you know, when when they win, when you have your your, your lessers of the world uh, winning the Premier League or, or in business, so yeah, that that. And, and I think that what's interesting too is you look at, I think I think Matthew Benham, and he has a different career path than I, but like he, he you know, he owns a gambling site. Like he's he's built businesses in the real world. Uh, that's what that was my background. Like I'm not not going to say that leaders at clubs. Uh, are just football people. Some of them are, some of them aren't. But like when you have people that actually have experience in the real world, they understand those skill sets and how those skill sets need to translate into the sports world and vice versa. I think clubs that are driven just by quote unquote football people can run into lots of problems uh, in terms of not understanding how this really works if you don't know how the real world works, right? And that was what, you know, when we hired our coach in Denmark three years ago, that's what really attracted us is that, yeah, he's a football guy and he's a coach, but he had a background in the business world. He owned a company that was focusing on human resources. Yeah, so, yeah. Like he, he was a director at a smaller club. Like he he knew on a day to day basis what it was like to to run a club. And I think that's to have that perspective can be very valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just uh, th- uh, three short questions uh, just to finish. Okay. First off, um, first of all, around World Football Summit. So you've been there before. You've spoken. So I want to understand. Well, I don't know if you've been to Sevilla before. You know, we're changing from from Madrid to Sevilla this year. Um, what are your expectations on one hand for, for World Football Summit for this year? Uh, and also, uh, if you think there's a specific value that World Football Summit brings to the table or to the industry? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I was at the World Football Summit last year. I spoke in Madrid, which was great. It was, it was a really cool uh, venue at the uh, Stadium, which was mm-hmm. fun. Um, I was, been to Sevilla once uh, about ten years ago with my wife on holiday, which was which was a fun trip. We did the south of Spain, Granada, mm-hmm. uh, went to the Alhambra, and did Sevilla, which was fantastic. Um, you know, I've been to a lot of these kind of events over the years, whether it's leaders, World Football Summit, uh, Football Business Summits, and uh, I think for certainly for what I do, the World Football Summit is the best out there. I think there's a, the most of the content is focused on, on areas that I think are important. Certainly a lot in the investment space, the management space, the people space. I think that's super important. Um, and, you know, in terms of the kind of people that are attending this, from my perspective, you know, other speakers, there's a handful that I know already. Um, and these are kind of people that are constantly helping me become better at what I do in terms of building those relationships and people I partner with, people I just bounce ideas off of. And I think the World Football Summit is a really great platform to get in the room with a lot of these people. I know it's been remote for a couple of years prior, but, um, 
it's it's a really good event, and I think it attracts the right kind of kind of people, and that's why you know for look. I split my time, but like, it's not easy for me to get a plane from California and necessarily go to Madrid or fit it in with my schedule in Denmark and make a point of, of going to it because I think it's that important. Well, well uh, I appreciate the, the kind words, really. Uh, uh, final question, and, and this is just out of curiosity because I think you have a, you, you're a soccer fan or you, you grew up playing soccer. And so I was thinking if you could, you know, bring in any player in history to Helsingborg, uh, there's no limits. Who would it be? Any player, oh, okay, I mean. You could choose uh, a limited, a limited budget, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Pele, probably the easy answer on that one. I don't know how well he would adjust to Denmark, though, because the cold and, and we've had Brazilians. And, but it's the happiest place on earth, they said, no? <laughs> no, it is. Uh, I would say, I think for our club, Helsingor being in Denmark, I think Peter Schmeichel would be really cool. I think he actually has a house, I've heard, up near where we are. Oh, really? I think having a player as a, as a you know, obviously an icon in Danish football at yeah. our club would be pretty cool. I, you know, his son Casper Schmeichel, same thing. Yeah. He's really cool, but Casper Schmeichel would, that would be a cool one. And there you have him, Mr. Jordan Gartner, co-owner at FC Helsingor from Denmark. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and picked up many insights and lessons that you can apply to your business career using analogies from the world of football. Once again. Feel free to reach out across social media and let us know your feedback. Nothing else from my side. We look forward to seeing you in the upcoming WFS Europe on the 28th and 29th of September. And of course, on the next episode of the World Football Summit podcast. See you next time and have a great rest of your day.